Hi, Dave Armour here. This is For the Record Program number 1309. Deep Politics and the Death of Iris Chang, Part 3. This is being recorded on August 4th of the year 2023. Remember uh, several things. First of all, before we get into the main body of the program, do check the for the do check the slipfilelist.com website on a regular basis for the very important comments made by Parafractal and sometimes made by other intelligent listeners as well. Uh, Parafractal is our brilliant contributing editor. This past week, for example, he contributed a really important article about uh, some of the MKUltra experiments that were performed not only on indigenous Canadians, but also a an overlapping program on uh, African-American inmates in New York State prisons. And those are characteristically excellent and important parafractal contributions. So please check the SpitfireList.com website on a regular basis. When you do that, uh, at the top of each written for the record description and at the top of each food for thought post, there are some links that you can use. One of those links will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that are being made of for the record by sister station WFMU. So if podcasts are the best way for you to, uh, consume for the record and then our telephone dominated or our smartphone dominated landscape that is increasingly the case sister station wfmu is podcasting for the record and there are links at the top of each for uh, each for the record description each written for the record description and each food for thought post that will enable you to subscribe to those podcasts also, once again, at the top of each written for the record description and at the top of each food for thought post, there is another link that will enable you to obtain the 32 gigabyte flash drive with all of my life's work on it, plus a small library of old anti-fascist books on easy to download PDF files. And that, that library will be updated, that flash drive will be updated soon. Now, as to the topic of this program, this is a follow-up both to, uh, for the record, uh, 507, I may be wrong about the number on that, but uh, I think it's actually, for the record, 509, about the death of Iris Chang. I will put the, the actual uh, number in the written description for the show, and in particular, this is a follow-up to, for the record, shows 1107 and 1108, which were recorded in early 2020. The late Iris Chang was a brilliant author who allegedly committed suicide on November 4th of 2004, November 9th, excuse me, of 2004, and uh, I think there is reason to ask questions about the circumstances surrounding her suicide. For one thing, uh, she may have been subjected to an element of mind control. She had been interned against her will at a psychiatric hospital in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, there also were discussions of uh, her having been recruited. There was some talk of her having been recruited as a Manchurian candidate uh, style operative by an unknown institution. 
we will uh, talk about that perhaps in this program. But at the time of Iris's alleged suicide, and uh, at the end of this program, or perhaps if this goes on to a second program, we'll talk about uh, some of the odd circumstances, physical circumstances surrounding her, quote, suicide, unquote, uh, there is reason to believe that uh, Iris Chang was the focal point of hostile action. Certainly, she was uh, coming across some of the most powerful dynamics in global and American power politics and uh, economics. Not only was her book about the rape of Nan King directly intersected with the Golden Lily program, which had its inception uh, at the rape of Nan King, the focal point of Iris's signature book, uh, Golden Lily, was the systematic looting program that was implemented by Japan during World War II when they literally corralled all of the liquid wealth of Asia. Some of it was taken back to the Japanese home islands, and much of it was uh, basically either sunk offshore off various islands, or more often was buried in highly secret and uh, very elaborate and booby-trapped tunnels, many of them in the Philippines, some elsewhere in uh, Asia. The total wealth in uh, that was amassed during Golden Lily is beyond contemplation. Just one tunnel in one complex in the Philippines alone contained 25 army trucks filled with gold bars, two 55-gallon drums filled with precious gems, and a and a series or three uh, golden Buddha statues, one of which was three feet tall, one of which I think was either six or eight feet tall, and another about 12 or 13 feet tall. The latter was so heavy that it could only be moved into the tunnel by a push-pull team of bulldozers. And obviously the bulldozer that was pulling could not then be removed from the tunnel, so what the Japanese did was they took the engine out and filled that also with boxes of gold bars, and then they drained the fuel uh, from the fuel tank and filled that with precious gems. That in and of itself is an orgiastic amount of wealth, and that's just one tunnel in one complex in the Philippines alone. As we have looked at in a series of programs uh, about the remarkable and consummately important book, Gold Warriors by Sperling and Peggy Seagrave, the Golden Lily program not only provided an enormous amount of wealth for covert operations, bribing political leaders and other political gambits, uh, for the U.S. and its allies during the Cold War, but indeed the enormous amount of gold that was amassed by Golden Lily uh, was used for, well, basically to uh, shore up the global financial system. The global gold inventory was uh, basically floored. It was uh, buttressed by the Golden Lily program. Basically, Golden, uh, excuse me, the, uh, well, the gold from the Golden Lily program. Uh, the gold 
that is discussed in Gold Warriors, again, was not only the linchpin of covert operations and political bribing during the Cold War. I suspect it also has much to do with uh, Cold War II and the maneuvering against China in Asia. I think the return to power of Ferdinand Marcos Jr., a.k.a. Bong Bong Marcos, uh, would have opened up the tap for the Golden Lily loot to begin flowing once again for, uh, or to flowing to a greater extent to uh, not only covert operations, but to bribe political leaders as well. I've also opined that, uh, in my opinion, uh, some of the controversies surrounding islands in the South China Sea may also involve uh, gold that was sunk in deliberately shallow waters, deliberately sunk in shallow waters by the Japanese, and uh, that was scheduled for later recovery. Some of that may very well have been in the South China Sea, and I think uh, some of those uh, golden lily wrecks, to coin the term, and also uh, some ships that were sunk laden with gold and have now been located using modern methods may also be adding to the gold cache that is, uh, in my opinion, a significant factor in Cold War II in Asia and the effort against China. Uh, the book Gold Warriors talks about, uh, again, not only the rape of Nanking, which was the inception of Golden Lily, but it also talks about how George W. Bush was requisitioning gold for his own uh, blind trust. And uh, some, one of the people that was involved, in uh, the, the guy in charge of Bush's blind trust, was William Stamps Farish III who was a very wealthy fellow who makes his home in Kentucky and is heavily involved with breeding thoroughbred horses in Kentucky and also with the uh, Kentucky Derby at Churchill Downs. I mentioned that because Iris Chang had a very hard time when she went down to Kentucky to interview some survivors of the Bataan Death March and was interned against her will in a psychiatric hospital there. I suspect that if she was in fact subjected to mind control, that may have in, uh, occurred in part at that hospital. I also wonder about the psychiatric drugs that uh, were prescribed to Iris Chang that also can be deliberately structured in such a way as to produce uh, serious harm in the targeted individual, including perhaps suicide. Indeed, uh, improper use of psychiatric drugs has been linked to uh, suicide. In 2009, when I interviewed Sperling and Peggy Seagrave for, for the record program 689, uh, in speaking to Sperling before the beginning of the program, I mentioned that I wanted to discuss Iris Chang's death, and I was convinced that, and that I was convinced it was a murder. Uh, Sterling not only agreed that it was a murder, but was very upset—not at me, but uh, with the concept—and refused to discuss Iris Chang's death. And Sterling again was convinced that it was a murder, and he was no shrinking violet. And indeed, uh, he was the victim of foul play. And both he and Peggy Sugay, the, tar- the target of many death threats and a lot of uh, serious skullduggery, as we have talked about in not only uh, For the Record 446, but also our long series of programs. 
dealing with the Song Dynasty. That uh, was the series of programs for the record 1194 through 2014. I think it was maybe 1195 through 2014. In any event, it's called the Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang. And we are going to be taking a look again, not only at the deep politics that Iris Chang uh, was involved with or that uh, uh, bore directly on Iris Chang's situation, but also some of the other things she was engaged in and the reasons why she may have been the victim of foul play or perhaps uh, overlap with mind control. As we noted, not only in Football Record 509, but in uh, 1107 and 1108, the people around Iris Chang thought that her psychological problems were, quote, internal, unquote. She was convinced they were, quote, external, unquote. And uh, I think there is reason to suspect that that may have been the case. Uh, we're going to explore that uh, in this program, and this may actually take more time. We may have to come back to this in a second program. We're going to begin by looking at a very moving and excellent book. It is offered by Ying Ying Chang, who was Iris Chang, is Iris Chang's mother, and the book is titled The Woman Who Could Not Forget, subtitled Iris Chang Before and Beyond the Rape of Man King. It was published in soft cover by Pegasus Books and copyrighted 2011 by Ying Ying Chang. In The Woman Who Could Not Forget, uh, Ying Ying Chang discusses some of the dark fears that uh, Iris had, and uh, she herself, to her great credit, could, uh, get, got to a point where she could not entirely dismiss them. And I think that is uh, admirable because many others, including her, her uh, widowed husband, Brett, he's since remarried, uh, dismissed Iris' problems as uh, simply symptomatic of mental distress. In the epilogue to the woman who, would not, who, could, who could not forget, Ying Ying Chang writes as follows. As most people know, her book, The Rape of Nanking, had caused a firestorm in Japan. Immediately after her death, people speculated that she might have been murdered by the Japanese right-wing groups. I initially excluded this possibility when newspapers raised the question right after her death. However, with time and a careful recall of the events that happened in the last period of her life, I need to reevaluate the small possibility that such groups played a role in her death. Iris was moody and paranoid after her book tour. If we believe what she told us, that someone on the book tour had threatened her, then her sudden change of behavior after the tour made more sense. We may never know what really happened. In the last six months of her life, she constantly referred to a, quote, evil force of conspiracy, unquote, attempting to prosecute her, because of what she had written. One more time, in the last six months of her life, Iris constantly referred to a, quote, an evil force of conspiracy, unquote, attempting to prosecute her because of what she had written. Family members always brush these claims aside, attributing them to her imagination, in other words, internal. 
However, after I read several political commentaries on Iris's death, for example, Stephen Clemens' eulogy of Iris, located in the appendix, the aura of conspiracy will always stay with me, no matter how unlikely it may sound. And in that epilogue, Stephen Clemens writes as follows, It would be irresponsible for me to suggest anything more than the authorities are suggesting about her death. But I would, that's Iris Chang's death. But I would only add that I find it distressing and worrisome that two brilliant change agents, Iris Chang and the late filmmaker Juzo Itami, who made us see our worlds differently than we otherwise would, each supposedly committed suicide after bouts of depression. I have never bought the story about Juzo Itami, whom I also knew and who was at war in his films with Japan's national right-wing crowd and Yakuza. Yakuza is the very formidable Japanese organized crime milieu. I would note that in an epilogue to The Rape of Man King, Iris's former husband, Brett Douglas, uh, widowed by Iris's death, he subsequently has remarried, has basically he dismissed uh, as, quote, miss, unquote, two theories about her death. And I um, not only want to uh, explore those, quote, miss, unquote, but I would point out that they are not separate things. And the real uh, proof of that particular pudding is the aforementioned book, Gold Warriors. In an epilogue to The Rape of Nan King, Brett writes, Another myth is that the CIA and the U.S. government were responsible for her breakdown and her death. Iris herself believed this because she was forcefully apprehended and confined against her will in a psychiatric ward in Louisville. It was a terrifying experience for her, and after going several days with very little food, water, or sleep, she believed that the U.S. government was behind it. She related this belief to several people during the last three months of her life, but I never saw any evidence to support her belief. Well, <laughs> uh, I wonder how hard he looked. That's one, one myth, quote, that the U.S. government was somehow behind it. He then dismisses the notion that the Japanese were behind it as another myth. Uh, I, as I pointed out in the discussion of... Uh, Gold Warriors, those are not two separate entities. As we spoke about in For the Record 509, on the very death, on the very day of Iris's death, November 9th, which not, uh, incidentally, is the German Day of Destiny, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger was meeting with high-ranking Japanese industrialists and financiers to find out a way to promote or to increase California-slash-Japanese business. And certainly, uh, as we have looked at in Gold Warriors and also in other of the Seagraves books, uh, the Japanese business milieu, both industrial and financial, is in no way separate from the dynamics around Golden Lily and the loot that was recovered therein, or that was stashed therein. Uh, Brett Douglas writes again in The Rape of Nan King in an epilogue, the final myth is that the Japanese government was somehow responsible for Iris's eventual suicide. Iris's life experiences gave her plenty of reason to be fearful of the Japanese. Iris's parents, 
and their families all experienced the Japanese invasion and occupation of China from 1937 to 1945, so Iris heard terrifying stories about Japanese atrocities growing up. While she researched the rape of Dan King, many of the people she worked with had lived through the Japanese invasion of China. When she was on tour promoting her books, many former U.S. servicemen, as well as people from Korea, China, Taiwan, Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, and the Philippines, would seek her out to tell her their horror stories of the Japanese occupation and their fears about the Japanese government. The Japanese press and Japanese activists attacked her in every verbal way they could. She received a good deal of hate mail during 1998 and 1999 while she was actively promoting the rape of Nanking. Well, again, as uh, we saw in our discussions of Gold Warriors, many programs dealing with that book, uh, the CIA and U.S. intelligence uh, apparatus, as well as the Bush administration itself, were in no way separate from uh, the dynamics of Golden Lily. And again, the Japanese government and the CIA, although obviously not coterminous by any means, uh, are in fact linked through the dynamic surrounding uh, the loot that was uh, acquired under Golden Lily and that then became the foundation for covert, for covert operations, uh, bribes, and uh, a serious buttressing of the international gold market in the uh, post-World War II period and Cold War period. One of the things to note is that it wasn't just the book uh, The Rape of Nanking per se that that, that drew the ire of the Japanese government, but Iris Chang's work itself cut across some very powerful dynamics, and indeed uh, The Rape of Nanking itself inspired some uh, serious political action. We're going to turn now to another of the remarkable books by Sterling and Peggy Seagrave. This is the book that preceded Gold Warriors. This is The Yamato Dynasty, uh, published in hardcover by Broadway Books, copyright 1999, by Sterling and Peggy Seagrave. And talking about the issue of compensation... Uh, from the Japanese to their various victims, and that was uh, very much on the table in the foreground in the final years of Iris's life. And indeed, there were lawsuits by POWs and others who were used by the Japanese as slave laborers. And some of those were from, uh, some of these slave laborers, I should say, were survivors of the Bataan death march. And indeed, at the very time of her death, I was working on a film and a book, a documentary film and a book about the survivors of the Bataan death march. And not only the Bataan death march per se, but her work itself cut across and had a profound influence on the Golden Lily CIA covert operations uh, and uh financial machinations that uh, were involved with the subject material of the book Gold Warriors and the loot that was acquired by the Japanese and then by the Americans uh, during the Golden Lily program. Turning again to the Yamato Dynasty by Sterling and Peggy Seagrave, they write, The issue of Japan's compensation is still very much alive in America as well. 
One month before Emperor Akihito's 1998 visit to Britain, Congress passed a resolution inspired by Iris Chang's seminal book on the rape of Nanking. Then the resolution reads, Whereas the government of Germany has formally apologized to the victims of the Holocaust and gone to great lengths to provide financial compensation to the victims and to provide for their needs and recovery, and whereas, by contrast, the government of Japan has refused to fully acknowledge the crimes it committed during World War II and to provide reparations to its victims. Now, therefore, be it resolved by the House of Representatives, the Senate concurring, that it is the sense of the Congress that the government of Japan should, one, formally issue a clear and unambiguous apology for the atrocious war crimes committed by the Japanese military during World War II, and two, immediately pay reparations to the victims of those crimes, including United States military and civilian prisoners of war. People of Guam, who were subjected one more time, immediately pay reparations. I should let me read this last part of the resolution. The sense of the Congress that the government of Japan should formally issue a clear and unambiguous apology for the atrocious war crimes committed by the Japanese military during World War II, and two, immediately pay reparations to the victims of those crimes, including United States military and civilian prisoners of war, people of Guam who were subjected to violence and imprisonment, survivors of the rape of Nanking, and from December 19th, one more time, Survivors of rape of Nanking from December 1937 until February of 1938, and the women who were forced into sexual slavery and known by the Japanese military as, quote, comfort women, unquote. And there continues to be denial on the part of the Japanese about uh, the comfort women as we looked at in discussion of, among other things, uh, an article published by a prestigious professor at Harvard Law School, J. Mark Lansire, uh, about the uh, comfort women saying that they volunteered to do what they did. Again, this was a resolution that was passed by Congress in 1998 uh, pursuant to Iris Chang's book, The Rape of Nanking. And uh, I'm going to review some material that we looked at in for the record uh, program 1107. And again, at the time of Iris, uh, basically at the time of uh, Iris's death, she was working on a documentary film and a book about survivors of the Bataan Death March, and some of those survivors had been shipped to Japan to serve as slave laborers. And indeed, uh, the Bataan Death March, by the way, younger listeners may not know about that, uh, Baby boomers who grew up with uh, knowledge of World War II would have a greater awareness of that. Uh, following the surrender of American forces in the Philippines uh, during World War II when the Japanese conquered the Philippines, uh, scores of thousands were marched some 60-odd miles uh, through jungle. Thousands of them died. That became known as the Bataan Death March. And again, some of those POWs were later used as slave laborers, and compensation for that slave labor was a major focal point uh, of lawsuits in the early part of the century. Uh, Reading now from the book Gold Warriors, 
by Sterling and Peggy Seagrave, published in softcover by Verso Books, copyright 2003 and 2005 by Sterling and Peggy Seagrave. Since 1999, more than 30 lawsuits have been filed in California courts by survivors of the Bataan Death March and other POWs who were forced to provide slave labor for Japanese companies. They were focused in California because the state legislature had extended the period when such claims could be filed. The U.S. government then had the cases transferred to a federal court in San Francisco, where most of these suits were rejected in September of 2000 by federal judge Vaughn Walker. Judge Walker said they were, quote, barred, unquote, by the terms of the 1951 peace treaty, the same stonewalling used by Tokyo and Washington. By the way, that treaty was negotiated by none other than John Foster Dulles. Continuing, hard as it may be to believe, the State Department argued on the side of Japanese corporations in these cases. Walker summed up his decision by stating that the San Francisco Peace Treaty had, quote, exchanged full compensation of plaintiffs for a future peace. History has vindicated the wisdom of that bargain, unquote. Some fought back. In March of 2001, U.S. Congressman Mike Honda, Democrat of San Jose, and Dana Rohrbacher, Republican of Huntington Beach, introduced a bill, quote, Justice for Prisoners of War Act, unquote, before the U.S. Congress. The bill had strong bipartisan support and by August of 2002 had 228 co-signers, including House Whips for both parties. Honda's bill called for, quote, clarification of the wording of the 1951 peace treaty between Japan and the United States to keep the State Department from deviously interfering in victims' lawsuits. If this bill became law, it could open the window for compensation to POWs who were forced to perform slave labor for Japanese companies like Mitsui, Mitsubishi, and Sumitomo, which are among the richest companies on earth. The bill would remove a key legal barrier, Article 26, used in Judge Walker's rejection of the slave labor lawsuits. Judge Walker, possibly under considerable pressure, sided with the State Department and ruled that Article 26 cannot be invoked by private citizens, but only by their government. The Honda Rohrabacher bill would get around that bizarre ruling by having Congress act for the victims. The State Department's unelected bureaucrats, aghast at the temerity of America's elected lawmakers, realized that Honda's bill cannot be thrown out by the exercise of political pressure over federal judges. Instead, State took the high moral ground by claiming that passage of Honda's bill, quote, would be an act of extreme bad faith, unquote. Bad faith toward Japan's biggest corporations, and it is extraordinarily corrupt and incompetent, Liberal Democratic Party bosses, or LDP bosses. The Department of State and Department of Justice are using Article 14 of the 1951 Peace Treaty to prevent POWs and other victims from suing immensely rich Japanese corporations such as Mitsubishi, Mitsui, and Sumitomo. At U.S. Senate hearings in June of 2000, Chairman Orrin Hatch of Utah challenged state 
and justice attorneys about the legitimacy of their claim that the 1951 peace treaty canceled all rights of victims. Quote, You mean our federal government can just say, to hell with you, Batan death marchers, and you people who were mistreated, we're just going to waive all your rights. Constitutionally, can our government take away the rights of individual citizens just because they put it in a treaty? We're not asking the Japanese government to pay. We're asking the companies that did the acts to pay. Some of these companies are multi-billion dollar companies today, unquote. Well, <laughs> Orrin Hatch was absolutely right. That's what they said. The hell with you, the pan death marchers, and the suits were uh, tossed out. Continuing with the Seagraves account. Despite such impassioned appeals, on September 21st, 20, one more time, despite such impassioned appeals, on September 21st of 2000, U.S. District Court Judge John, well, one more time, despite such impassioned appeals, on September 21st of 2000, U.S. District Court Judge Vaughn Walker ruled against American POWs and other slave laborers. Walker dismissed their suits, saying it was dangerous to upset the diplomatic alliance that existed between America and Japan since the end of the war. And we note, by the way, that Judge Walker was appointed to the federal bench by George Herbert Walker, the father of George W. Bush, who uh, was president at the time of Iris's quote, suicide, unquote, and who was at the same time availing himself of Golden Lily Loop, as we looked at in the uh, for the record 1107 and 1108, and who also, by the way, his uh, Arbusto Energy Company appears to have been, or Spectrum 7, as it morphed into, appears to have been a money laundering vehicle uh, for, among other things, Golden Lily Loop. Again, we spoke about that in for the record 1107 and 1108, uh, accessing material from Russ Baker's landmark book, Family of Secrets. I would note as well that, uh, again, Iris Chang was very active in pointing out the fallacy of Article 26 of that peace treaty. She was anything but passive with regard to uh, Article 36, Article 26, excuse me, and turning once again to the woman who could not forget Iris Chang before and beyond the rape of Nanking by her mother, Yingying Chang, we read, and this is about Iris's activism with regard to the U.S.-Japanese Peace Treaty of 1951, and we, by the way, have spoken about that at great length in many programs. In September of 2001, it was a bit better. This is just before the September 11th attacks. In September of 2001, there was a big conference in San Francisco organized by U.S. and Japanese officials in celebration of the 50th anniversary of the San Francisco Peace Treaty. Japan insisted that all matters related to wartime reparations to its victims had been settled by the San Francisco Peace Treaty. In reality, I was said, a close reading of the actual treaty revealed that the reparations matter was nearly postponed until Japan had the financial means to pay. The entire issue had been left hanging for more than half a century and still had never been resolved. The protest 
and counteract the official commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the San Francisco Peace Treaty, the Bay Area Activist Group's Global Alliance and the Rape of Man King Redress Coalition and the University of California at Berkeley Ethnic Studies jointly held a big three-day conference and a rally from September 7th to September 9th. The conference coincided with the official one at the same time and in the same city. The conference was named, quote, 50 Years of Denial, Japan and its Wartime Responsibilities, unquote. Iris was invited to be the keynote speaker on the first day of the conference. On September 8, 2001, Iris wrote to us to report on the event. Dear Mom and Dad, I just wanted to let you know that I returned from SF safely tonight. The conference was incredible, and it was almost as if the entire event was designed to honor me. Congressman Mike Honda, a member of Senator Feinstein's staff, and several luminaries heaped lavish praise on me during their dinner speeches, how this book changed their lives, made world history, and launched an international movement. And the crowd went wild over my opening lecture this afternoon. Washingtonians wanted to have it introduced into the congressional record. The director of the Nanking Massacre Museum asked for a copy so he could translate it into Chinese. Reporters asked if they could publish it. My lecture was interrupted constantly by rousing applause and cheers. At the very end, everyone gave me a standing ovation. Amazing, considering that I wrote the speech at midnight yesterday and had no time to rehearse. Anyway, I will give you more details later. Much love, Iris. Iris said that Article 26 of the San Francisco Peace Treaty stated, quote, Should Japan make a peace settlement or a war claim settlement with any state granting that state greater advantages than those provided by the present treaty, those same advantages shall be extended to the parties to the present treaty, unquote. According to Iris, the latest declassified State Department records showed that the U.S. held secret negotiations with Japan and helped wartime victims in several countries, such as the Netherlands, receive compensation from Japan. But the U.S. chose to ignore Article 26 of the treaty and sold out its own veterans by waiving their claims to reparations. Iris called the San Francisco Peace Treaty a travesty of justice, a betrayal to our own American veterans. Indeed, something of an aside, I get somewhat nauseated by the sight of the the little yellow ribbon bumper stickers on people's cars saying, I support the troops. Uh, That, by the way, for younger listeners, that yellow ribbon bumper sticker uh, derives from uh, a cheesy pop song in the mid-1970s by Tony Orlando and Dawn, called Tie a Yellow Ribbon, and the, or maybe it's Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree, and I'm not going to insult you by uh, foisting the lyrics off on you, and I'm not going to embarrass myself by trying to sing the song, but uh, that is the reference to the, uh, the, that is what the Yellow Ribbon Bumper Stickers refer to, tying a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. Well, any jackass can put a yellow ribbon bumper sticker on their bumpers. That doesn't support the troops. Who really supports the troops? I would submit 
But there's people like Iris Chang, people like Sterling and Peggy Seagrave, uh, people who have done so much investigating into what really happened, not only in World War II, but in America's other conflicts. Uh, later on in this discussion, either in this program or in our next, we'll talk about some interest Iris had in, uh, basically in the uh, Gulf War veterans. Uh, we've spoken about them in uh, connection with uh, Garth, Drs. Garth and Na- Nancy Nicholson and their work on Gulf War Syndrome, which far from being the result of PTSD, appears to have been produced by a genetically engineered microorganism called a mycoplasma uh, that was given to Saddam Hussein and then loaded by Saddam Hussein, given to Saddam Hussein by uh, the U.S., and then loaded onto Scud missiles and fired into Saudi Arabia. It was not... PTSD, but of course, if the truth ever began to unravel about that, it would shed light on the U.S. biological warfare engineering and the transferring of some of those organisms to Saddam Hussein. Again, it's people like Iris Chang who support the troops, and uh, she paid dearly for that. And uh, we've spoken about her work with the uh, Baton Death March veterans in uh, our la- in formerly the aforementioned former record programs 1107 and 1108. And still more about the uh, Iris's uh, activism and how it ran afoul of the powers that be. Uh, Iris was, uh, did an appearance on uh, television, on the uh, McNeil Ware News Hour, and he she did so with the Japanese ambassador to the United States, Ambassador Sato, and uh, that encounter uh, proved to be very embarrassing to the Japanese. And uh, Iris basically was asking for an apology, and that was uh, not forthcoming. Uh, and in the woman who could not forget, Ying Ying Chang writes as follows. Iris continued, The Japanese government had delivered an apology to the South Korean government, a written apology, and the Chinese government had expected the same a few weeks ago. And I think that the reason why it became an issue was because that expectation was pretty much dashed during Zhang Zemin's visit, which was, I think, certainly a loss of a golden opportunity for Japan to properly show its repentance for, for the crimes committed by the Japanese Imperial Army across Asia. Of course, not only is the real history of World War II to a large extent now still verboten in Japan, but a real exploration of what Japan did in Asia during World War II would come to the operator to Golden Lily, it would come to the uh, joining of the U.S., with the Japanese and with its Cold War allies in the surreptitious use of that gold for covert operations, bribing politicians, and to buttress the international financial system. And again, as we looked at in for the record of 1107 and 1108, early in his administration, George W. Bush was aggressively pursuing some of the golden lily loot in the Philippines in order to put into his blind trust. And again, his blind trust was managed for him by William Stamps Farish III, who was a thoroughbred horse breeder in Kentucky, and also were very much involved with the Kentucky Derby, because it was in Kentucky that Iris basically had a lot of problems when she went to interview uh, some of the Bataan death marchers. 
continuing with Ying Ying Chang's account of this McNeilware uh, news hour encounter between Iris Chang and the Japanese ambassador. Ambassador Sato, S-A-I-T-O, stated that he thought that Prime Minister Tomichi Murayama's statement in 1995 had already expressed his deep sense of remorse and had offered sincere apologies to the people of Asian countries. Farnsworth, the moderator, then turned to Iris, quote, what would be enough, unquote. Iris replied, first of all, for Japan to honestly acknowledge some of the basic facts of these kinds of atrocities, which many revisionists refuse to do, and definitely a written apology, reparation made to the victims, inclusion of Japan's wartime aggression in school textbooks in Japan. Iris continued, quote, and I think that people don't believe that Japan has properly apologized or atoned for what happened because these apologies don't come spontaneously and naturally. Then she challenged the ambassador. What I'm curious to know is, can the ambassador himself say today on national TV live that he personally is profoundly sorry for the rape of Nanking and other war crimes against China and the Japanese responsibility for it? Sato was responding with the usual words that the Japanese government always used, quote, To the incident in Nanking, we do recognize that really unfortunate things happen. Acts of violence were committed by members of the Japanese military. By the way, it was uh, um, a brother of uh, Emperor Hiroshito who uh, was responsible for uh, the rape of Nanking. He specifically gave the order. We will teach our Chinese brothers a lesson. It wasn't random at all. Continuing. Farnsworth wanted to conclude the interview and said, quote, We have time only for a brief response from you, unquote. Iris struggled to say that what Sato said was not entirely correct, but she was interrupted by Farnsworth ask, asking her the apology. Iris at first was not quite sure she'd understood the question and repeated back the apology. Did you hear an apology? Farnsworth asked. Iris replied, I don't know. Did you hear an apology? I did not really hear the word apology that was made. And I think that if he had said genuinely, I personally am sorry for what the Japanese military had done in World War II, I would have considered that an apology. I think that would have been a great step in the right direction. Shua Jin and then the Ying Yang Zhang, right? Shua Jin, that was Iris' father. Shua Jin is S-H-A-U hyphen capital J-I-N. Shua Jin and I, after watching the program, felt very worried and frightened. On the one hand, we were very proud of Iris that she had the courage to ask the ambassador to apologize to the Chinese people on live TV. But on the other hand, we felt that the right-wing nationalists in Japan would be angry if they saw it. I could not fall asleep that night. The next day, one of Shaojin's physics colleagues told him that he admired Iris for her courage, but at the end, he added that Irish... One more time. The next day, one of Shaojin's physics colleagues told him that he admired Iris for her courage, but at the end, he added that Iris should hire a bodyguard. That comment fed our worries even more. And again, this is not, you know, quote, from a conspiracy theorist, unquote. This was one of uh, Iris's father's uh, fellow physics professors.
And he added that Irish, Irish should hire a bodyguard. And uh, that is uh, worth noting. And also, Irish Chang was by no means limited to things related to uh, World War II and to Japan and the rape of Nanking. She was very critical of uh, the George W. Bush administration. And indeed, it was George W. Bush, as we look at in for the record 1107 and 1108, who was basically feathering his own nest, or specifically feathering his blind trust with um, gold from uh, the Philippines, from Golden Lily. And as we'll see, uh, Iris was... She felt threatened by the Bush administration, of which she was very critical, and uh, was very much hoping that John Kerry would win the election. Uh, turning once again to the woman who could not forget. Tuesday, November 2nd, was the presidential election. The day before, Iris had told us that someone had emailed her and predicted that John Kerry would win. She felt relief when she heard the prediction. The next day, as we know, Kerry lost to Bush. We knew that Iris was against Bush's foreign policy at the time and supported Kerry strongly. Besides, she'd written several articles which were highly critical of the Bush administration. The prospect of enduring four more years of the Bush administration was too much for her. The election results could make her even more depressed. And uh, still more about Iris's uh, critical attitude toward the Bush administration, uh, again, from the woman who could not forget. Ying Ying Chang writes in uh, the introduction, uh, Iris was an all-around human rights champion. While most people are familiar with her exceptional writing, Iris, however, wasn't just passionate about certain subjects with her relentless advocacy, such as her pursuit of justice for those who were brutally victimized or murdered in Asia and the Pacific theater by the Imperial Japanese war machine during World War II. She also held deep and unwavering conviction to civil rights and human rights at home and abroad. For example... Iris was extremely disturbed by the widespread Muslim bashing in the country immediately after the 9-11 terrorist attacks and George W. Bush's unjust invasion of Iraq. She took part in a TV cable public forum along with Jewish and Arabic activists who shared her serious concerns, even though Iris was at the time intensely involved in her vast book research and numerous speeches at universities and national television and radio stations. Her gloomy face reflected her profound feeling for those victimized by racial prejudice and hatred as she discussed how history sadly repeated itself in America and elsewhere from the past discrimination against immigrants, Irish, Jews, Chinese, etc., to the unconstitutional internment of Americans of Japanese descent, to the modern-day bashing of ethnic minorities. Indeed, um, her, her, her widowed husband, Brett Douglas, also wrote about Iris's uh, criticism of the Bush administration and her championing of human rights. And I would note that this also would have placed her afoul 
of uh, George W. Bush and uh, his team. Turning once again to the, an epilogue to the 2010 softcover edition of uh, The Rape of Man King by Iris Chang. It is published by, in softcover by Basic Books and copyright, this is the, uh, two, actually published by 2011, this is the epilogue. And of Iris's criticism of the Bush, George W. Bush administration, uh, Brett Douglas writes. And this is a very telling insight, by the way. During the last few years of her life, the U.S. government took several actions that disturbed Iris, most notably the Bush administration's attack on Iraq in 2003. She also was, during the last few years of her life, the U.S. government took several actions that disturbed Iris, most notably the Bush administration's attack on Iraq in 2003. She was also disturbed by the attack and killing of the Branch Davidians, the Clinton administration's bombing of multiple Middle Eastern nations during the Monica Lewinsky scandal, the humanitarian bombing in Kosovo, the Bush administration's hostility towards China in 2001, the loss of privacy and personal liberties from the Patriot Act, and the indefinite extension of suspect, and the indefinite detention of suspected terrorists without charging them with a crime. Iris saw these as a progression of changes leading the United States toward becoming a society capable of atrocities similar to those she had studied. Well, indeed, I would <laughs> submit that we have uh, definitely crossed that barrier, and uh, this program certainly is going to, uh, is, we're not going to be able to complete the discussion in this broadcast, so when we get to part four, uh, I don't think there'll necessarily be enough material for a full program about Iris Chang, but uh, we should note that the new Cold War, not only against Russia, but against China, also uh, places Iris's work in uh, a context that uh, we should use to uh, gain a deeper understanding of the circumstances surrounding her death. Now, turning once again to uh, the book, The Woman who could not forget? And uh, we read the following about uh, what Iris went through when she went to Kentucky. Now, again, Kentucky was the stamping ground of uh, William Stamps Farish. And uh, when Iris went down there to interview Bataan Death Marchers, again, uh, her work on the Bataan Death Marchers placed her right smack dab in the middle of the dynamic we were talking about with the lawsuits that were dismissed by Judge Vaughn Walker. Ying Ying Chang writes as follows in The Woman Who Could Not Forget. That night we went to sleep and assumed that Iris would be all right. But about 2 a.m. California time in the early morning of Friday, August 13th, we were awakened by a phone call. I picked up the phone and it was Iris. Her voice was shaking and told me she had seen some frightening pictures on the TV in her hotel room. Iris and I then had a conversation about this. Apparently she could not fall asleep, so she turned the TV on. I asked her what kind of pictures were on the TV screen, and she said it showed some horrible atrocities and ugly images of children torn apart by wars. She said that the TV was showing something similar to scenes from hell, like an imagined World War III. 
She had then turned off her TV, waited a while, and turned it on again to find that the ugly images had disappeared. I responded that the TV had made, that maybe the TV had been showing a war movie. It's very possible, I said, that during the wee hours of the night, TV stations would show such a genre of horror films. Then, Iris told me she did not feel things had been quite right from the very moment she arrived at the hotel. The clerk at the front desk looked suspicious to her and spoke to a person who later kept looking at the window of her room. While Iris was talking with me on the phone, she told me that she could still see the person standing outside on the lawn, not far from her room. He looked at her window as she peered through her curtain. She told me she suspected her room was wired, and that what she had seen on the TV was real and intentionally shown to threaten her. Uh... As crazy as it will sound, it is possible. I obviously have no way of knowing uh, what Iris saw on the TV, but it is certainly feasible for uh, a cable TV company to uh, put images like that on the television if, in fact, Iris was under physical surveillance and the focal point of covert operations, and that certainly seems uh, to be a distinct possibility, uh, that may have been the case. I don't know which cable TV it, company it is, but one of the major cable TV companies is uh, a, a subsidiary of Hughes Electronics, and that's a company that is inextricably linked with the intelligence community. So we will finish... Uh, our discussion of Iris Chang and the deep politics surrounding her death in our next program. By the way, and for the record, uh, for the record broadcast 1307 and 1308, I misspoke myself and I want to, uh, correct that. In discussing the atomic bombs, I alluded to the, uh, Mark One Nagasaki weapon as the Thin Man. Uh, the Mark Three Nagasaki weapon was called, uh, the Fat Man, but the Mark One Nagasaki, uh, the Hiroshima weapon, excuse me, the Mark I Hiroshima weapon I alluded to as the Thin Man. The Mark III Nagasaki weapon is called the Fat Man, but the Mark I is actually called the Little Boy. So it's not Thin Man and Fat Man, it was Little Boy and Fat Man. And again, uh, Peter Vogel uh, has uncovered a very heroic uh, piece of, basically his heroic research on the Port Chicago explosion indicates that the seemingly missing Mark II was in fact an early nuclear weapon, an early atomic weapon that was tested at Port Chicago. Uh, we will continue with our discussion of deep politics and the death of Iris Chang and probably also some of the uh, covert operations against China in our next program. However, this concludes for the record program number 1309, Deep Politics and the Death of Iris Chang, Part 3. This is being recorded on, on August 4th of the year 2023. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.